Good morning. Well, it's good to be here with you and a chance to worship and look at God's Word together, to hear God's Word read and to study it. And this morning we're going to look at a passage from Acts 4 and Acts 6. And uh, during Easter, this season that leads us up to Pentecost, we are looking at passages from the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's really, and I'll keep repeating this, it's really the story of the risen Jesus the risen Christ, calling and gathering his people. And so as we read this morning, as we gather in God's name, we remember and proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He's not dead. He's alive. And still today, he's calling and gathering his church. And as we look at these passages in Acts, we are asking or we are trying to ask together, what is this new community like? What are the characteristics of those who are gathered by Jesus? What is he forming in us. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Peter's first sermon in Acts, and we saw that the church is a community formed by the proclamation of the gospel. And then last Sunday, we, in the face of oppression and persecution, we saw the church pray for boldness and pray for the renewal and healing of their neighbors. And we saw that the church is a community marked by prayer. And this morning, as I said, we're looking at Acts 4 and 6, two passages from those chapters And what we'll see is that these reveal the church as a community marked by generosity, a generous community. So what is this new community? What is Jesus gathering when he gathers us together? He's forming a community with intentional and sacrificial generosity for one another. So let's look at these passages, Acts 4, verse 32 through 37, and then Acts 6, 1 through 7. You can follow in your order or in your Bible. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds that was sold and laid at at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any, as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Acts 6. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing a number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Iconor, and Timon, and Parnius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gathered us here, and we thank you for your word, which we desperately need to hear. Lord, we come into your presence with some of us feeling joy and encouragement, being seen, 
while others feel pain or disappointment, longing. Lord, you know our hearts. And you know how we come before you this day. And we pray that by your Spirit that you would meet us, each one of us. And by your Word, speak good news to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at these two passages and we think about the church as a generous community, I want us to move through the sermon with, with three questions. Really, first is, what, what do we see? What do we see in these passages? And the second, the question is, why? Why was generosity a fundamental part of the church? And then the last thing is how it challenges us, how it speaks to you and me. So let's start with, what do we see? What, what do we see in Acts 4 and Acts 6? Well, Acts 4, our passage opens by saying the full number of those who believed, the, the Christians, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Then a couple sentences later, there were, was no needy person among them. We're invited to picture in our mind, you know, persons from diverse backgrounds, different experiences, different families are now united, described as one heart and soul. In this union, to express this union, they generously share their resources with one another, especially to those as needs come up. One heart and soul. This phrase can be translated in maybe other Bibles that you have translated together or of one accord or of one mind. Together. That idea of together is used 12 times by Luke in the book of Acts to describe the Christian community. Together, it literally means to share a strong emotion, to share the same zeal or strong and fiery energy. This common zeal or strong and fiery energy. We need to pause and acknowledge that we know from history and we know even from current events that zeal isn't always used for good. Just because someone is zealous does not mean they'll be using it in a way that is good. Humans can unite for a variety of reasons and it can turn ugly. Embracing meanness, racial, ethnic hatred to justify violence. Zeal can be based in or expressed in all sorts of things, even in the dismissal or the fear of others. And we have to acknowledge that as we think about this zeal or this kind of fiery movement, that there have been times in the past and even present where men and women who bear the name Christian act together in ways that are violent or mistreating of others. But here, but here, what do we see? What does it mean? Here, how is this zeal and this togetherness being expressed? It's expressed in generous giving and care. Community members selling their land and giving their resources to the church for its distribution. And I want us to dwell here and think about the significance of the church functioning in this way, for they were in a violent culture. The Roman culture was known for its culture being rooted in power and violence against anything that would question it. And the early church did not rise up in violence to meet violence, did not rise up in hatred of the other. Why? Why did they not seek the revenge of Jesus who was put to death? Why did they not push back and demand that they have rights just like others, that they look down on others? Why not return violence with violence? Why not maintain social lines or divisions? 
This is an important question because we live in a climate of protecting your own, protecting your own turf. We live in a setting where it's often, whether directly said or even indirectly, that success and abundance is dependent upon pushing down or denying another. In this resurrection community, this zeal, this fiery energy, this one heart and soul is defined by the person of Jesus. Jesus who says to love your neighbors, even your enemies. Jesus who prayed for those who persecuted him. Jesus who laid down his life for those who rejected him. And therefore, together is defined not by power, it's not defined by pushing down another or grabbing what you can, but by the person and life and ministry of Christ. This togetherness was confusing to the Roman culture. There's been a number of scholars who've written about how the Roman culture found the church strange. Strange. One, because they didn't really know how to categorize their religion, but also strange because of how they cared for one another. Strange that they were generous and they they even gave of their possessions to help the sick or the poor, those outside of their own family. Tertullian, an early Christian apologist, when writing about how those outside the church viewed the church, wrote, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. They say, look how they love one another. It might be surprising to us to read a Barnabas selling land. We know that land is valuable. It's a valuable asset but it would have been incredibly, incredibly shocking in his culture. You're selling your family's land to benefit those who are not part of your family. You're selling your family estate to benefit those who are not your own blood. This would have been shocking and confusing. Yet in their union with Jesus, their togetherness in Jesus, the members of the church regard their private estates even as a resource for the church, for one another. And this wasn't a primitive form of communism. It wasn't a disregard of material possessions because they thought the world was ending. It wasn't that. Rather, it is a sign and expression of new identities, new ways of seeing one another and seeing their possessions. In the church, people still had homes and still had provisions for themselves and their families, but they also see these resources as a means to support the church in its mission and to provide for one another, especially in need. Together. Together not in violence. Together not in hating another. Together in Jesus. Telling us that what we have, what you and I have, is not simply mine, but it's God's. And God calls us to use it in a way that reflects our connection to Him and to one another. So that's what we see. We see that in our passage. We see the church caring for each other. And I want us to think about why that is. Why is generosity fundamental to a Christian community? Why is it fundamental to our identity? The second thing to ask is why. As we think about that question, why, there's kind of two parts I want us to explore. One is the story of Scripture, and the other we could call the problem. The story and the problem. We need to start by seeing this kind of the story that In both our passages, there is an evoking of the Old Testament law. In Acts 4, this first section, when it says there was no needy among them, it is a quote from Deuteronomy 15. And then later in Acts 6, when it references caring for the widows, 
It reflects not only Deuteronomy, but other Old Testament passages that direct God's people to care for the vulnerable, to care for the widow and the orphan, to care for the foreigner, the refugee, the traveler in your midst. Throughout Scripture, the godly covenant community must include generous care, especially for those who are on the edges or those who are vulnerable. This is the case because God's people are to represent God, and God is generous and shelters the weak and the poor with his steadfast love. Think about the story of the scripture story of God. We can think about creation. What do you have? What do you have that is not a gift? Your being, your breath. You've been placed in a world of abundance, a place in a world that God created that we may bear his image in this good place. This is generous. It's not an earned wage. It is a generous gift to us. Think of God's covenant with Abraham. God chose Abraham and tells Abraham, I will bless you, and through your family, I will bless all the nations. God not only starts the covenant of grace there, but he is demonstrating a pattern that when God blesses his people, that they may in turn bless others, even the nations, even those outside of them. Think of the Exodus, when God says very directly to the people of Israel, you were slaves, you were marginalized, forgotten and abused in your setting, but now that you're set free, you are called to forever remember that experience, forever to remember that you may be attentive to the vulnerable among you. As the people set free from slavery and formed into a community, God intends Israel to be a nation of brothers and sisters where there will be no poor. Think about this, the poor and oppressed in Egypt are set free that they may become a community that always remembers and cares for the poor. This is God's will for his people to represent him in the world. And think of Jesus, of course, the revelation of God as one who shelters with his steadfast love, the revelation of God as generous comes to its fullness in the person and ministry of Christ. Jesus, the one who was rich, became poor to make those who were poor rich. Jesus, the eternal word, takes on flesh, entering your sin and shame and death to bring new life and identity. Jesus, the one who saw and did not forget the weak and poor among him, the one who saw those that others had forgotten, he welcomed them. And therefore his church is to walk in the ways of God and the ways of Christ when we read that God shows no partiality, accepts no bribes, and God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. This is the story of the scriptures. This is how God has revealed himself and invited us to know him and to live as his people. The church is to be a generous community because God himself is generous. But in the midst of that story that our passages remind us of, Acts 6 also reminds us of a problem. A problem. This is a beautiful vision. It's compelling to think about representing God. But even as the church is gathering and forming, even as they have one heart and they are together, a problem comes to the surface. And do you see what it is? In Acts 6, the second section in your order, a problem emerges along a fault line that existed for a very long time a subtle distinction between people from different ethnic or language groups, 
a question of relative status. This distinction is between the Hellenists and the Hebrew widows. And on this fault line, an issue arises. The daily allotment of food was made to the poor or the vulnerable in the community. People gave to a common fund and food being dispersed. But one group of widows was being overlooked. One group was being favored over another. And here's a problem. Recently, I came across a, a New Yorker cartoon. The cartoons are often very funny. And this one, it was just writing on the white background. And it had a, synonyms for no across the top. Synonyms for no with a line under it and a list. Synonyms for no. Not this time. Maybe next time. I'd love to, but let me think about it. I'll get back to you. We'll see. And the last on the list was absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, In the comments underneath, there was one person who said, absolutely, what does that mean? And underneath it right away was, I use that one all the time. Maybe some of those things are, are you've heard said or you say yourself and in the workplace or at school or with your kids or family. It's a silly way maybe to capture how we avoid trying to have conflict or avoid saying no. Maybe we can think of times that we have asked. We've asked for things or we've asked if someone wants to do something. It doesn't work out and it's no big deal, right? Just asking. But there are times when we do ask and that we are turned away. There are times I'm sure that all of us in this room have asked, asked for something, and not been received. If we talk about generosity, if we talk about the story of Scripture, we also have to talk about need, about needing things, needing help, about asking for help. Some of the vulnerable, some of the widows who had asked for help were being excluded. They'd expressed their need. They'd asked for help, but now they have to ask again because they're being forgotten. We can ask ourselves, have we had the experience, have you had the experience of voicing a need, of actually finding the courage to say, I I need help here? Asking for help, it can be incredibly hard. It can be hard even just to express it, to share it with others, but it can be painful and devastating that when we do such things, when we ask for help, we offer ourselves, that people turn away, that our open hands are met with rejection, possibly even rudeness or harshness. Most think the difference between the Hellenist and the Hebrew widows was language. Some spoke Greek and some spoke Aramaic. And one group is being overlooked, excluded, because of how they speak because of the language in their mouth. Maybe you, even after asking for help, even after being told that you will be helped, have been overlooked or forgotten. Or we have to think about the other side. The other side, if we think about generosity, we have to think about us being asked. Someone asking us for assistance or for care. The possibility of us or choosing to give. And we're reminded that money, the asking for help, the call to give, exposes our heart, opens our hearts in deep ways. And there are moments, if we're honest, or parts of our heart that are quick to justify ourselves, 
quick to judge others, quick to give in to fear. We have so much fear when we think about money and our resources, so much fear. I won't have enough. Surely I would like to help, but I won't have enough. Or we can be quick to judge. I have what I deserve. I have what I've worked for, but that person doesn't have because things that they've done or not done. In Deuteronomy, these, these sections that our passage is evoking, there is this interesting paradox where God on, says on one hand, there should be no poor among you, for I will bless you richly. But on the other hand, in the same area, God says, you will always have the poor with you. Therefore, open your hands towards your brothers and sisters, towards the poor and needy in your land. You see that tension, that paradox that God, even as He calls us to be generous, that calls us to be open-handed with our things, there's a realistic awareness of our nature, of our fears, the depth of human greed and reluctance to share or to give. Some of the widows are being neglected, overlooked and forgotten. So the apostles call together the community, do you see? And they ask them to select seven men to be responsible for administrating the charitable donation or the giving out of food. Jesus shared his ministry and the apostles remember this and so therefore they seek to share the ministry as well. And we could possibly read where the apostles talk about that they're not supposed to serve tables as a negative, that they are somehow looking down on this task, but that's not the case. They're simply recognizing that God has called them to a certain role of ministry and word. But we see the significance of this task of caring for the need among them by who is selected. This is not a small job, not insignificant. These are individuals of honorable reputation, wise and full of faith in the Holy Spirit. The community selects the first deacons. The apostles install them with prayer and laying on of hands. The church sets apart these people, these deacons, to attend in an intentional way the needs of the community, the, the vulnerable or the hurting. We come back to why. Why? This is not simply an administrative task that was being handed off. There was a setting forth of leaders in the church because this was crucial and fundamental to the church. This moment, this problem of seeing the human sin and even in the church overlooking certain widows because of how they spoke, was an opportunity to remember again the gospel, the word that was being preached, the generosity of God. This is not just an administrative question, but again about fundamentally ordering ourselves around the generosity of our God. Some of the widows are being overlooked. The church takes this seriously, for it's part of their very identity. And this gives us a challenge and a call. And I want us to conclude here by asking, what does this say to us? And offer two quick things. One, for us to think about, is it possible to love? Is it possible to think about love without generosity? To practice love without generosity of spirit, of forgiveness, of sharing our possessions. To think about your family, your marriage, your friendships, your neighborhood, your church. Is it possible that we could actually honor God and love our neighbors as ourselves without being generous? Is it possible for our church to represent Christ in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world without being generous with what God has given to us? In our culture, money functions in all sorts of strange ways, right? We know that. The accumulation of goods is how you'll know you'll be okay. 
Money serves as a marker of status, a symbol of respect. And maybe that's why Jesus, when he's calling his disciples, there was a great crowd around him. There was many who were coming towards him. And he says to them, if any of you would come after me, you must renounce all that you have. You must renounce all that you have. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Those are hard words, but ones that are good. Jesus is inviting to see, for us to see all that we are and all that we have as belonging to him. I saw on the highway the other day an advertisement for the Illinois Lottery. $316 million. Can you believe that? $316 million. But underneath of that number, it said, what are you going to do with all that time? What are you going to do with all that time? Which I thought was a profound uh, statement by the lottery organization. You don't win time when you win the lottery, right? But they are connecting money to time. And behind this image, behind that question, was this beautiful island out in the ocean, suggesting, I guess, that you could go to the island and relax. Even the lottery organization, they know that money represents and points to all sorts of things. Access, schedules, status. Jesus knows that as well. And that's why he said that when you think about your treasure, it reveals your heart. When you think about our money and how we give, it points very deeply into us. So we can conclude maybe by asking, why would someone sell their land to bless their brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would someone give of their possessions to bless the church and its mission. The only reason that would make sense for us to be generous, people generous, generous to one another, is that we trust God. That we trust God's providence. That we trust God's care. For it makes no sense that we let go of these things if we were simply on our own. But if we believe that God holds us and that we are God's children in Christ, then we are entrusting ourselves to something beyond our money and our resources and our plans. We're entrusting ourselves to God and His ways. And therefore, giving is an act of faith and an act of resistance against the world that tells you to trust yourself or your bank account. It is an act of resistance. To say, I'm entrusting my needs, my shelter, my food, the raising of my family, my well-being. I'm entrusting those things to the God who is a living God. Jesus, not the one who's dead, but the resurrected one who is alive and in whom I am the child of God. So when we give or when we're asked to give, it's an opportunity for us to entrust ourselves to God. For whoever we are, whatever we have or we don't have, God invites us to respond to his generous grace by being generous with one another, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God that's generous and gracious. I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would minister to us. Again, wherever we are and whatever questions or struggles that we face, meet us there and minister to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.